There are some things about Jesus that we just don't know. We don't know what he looked like. No one ever described the sound of his voice. We've got very little access to his interior life. He didn't leave behind any personal letters or papers. So we don't know some of his most inmost thoughts and feelings. But there's one thing that we do know, and it may surprise you. Jesus liked a good party. Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 7 in which he likens his critics to stubborn children. Now, if you're a parent, perhaps you've experienced this before. Sometimes kids complain no matter what. So Jesus imagines a playground, and there's one group of kids who refuse to play what another group of kids are proposing, regardless of whether they offer a happy game or a sad one. No matter what song they play, these kids just refuse to dance. And in a similar way, Jesus suggests that John the Baptist, his forerunner, lived a strict ascetic lifestyle in keeping with his warning of judgment and his call to repentance. But people complained. Well, John the Baptist must just be a raving lunatic. But then they turned right around and accused Jesus of being a glutton and a drunk because he was hanging out all the time with tax collectors and sinners. So you see, it seems as if no matter wherever Jesus went, there was food and drink and music and song, and some people despised him for it. Now, those two accusations that Jesus was indulging too much in food and drink and associating himself with notorious sinners, those two accusations were really just one and the same. What bothered everyone is that Jesus was partying with all the wrong kinds of people. Now, we're in the midst of a series in which we are considering the authentic Jesus. We're exploring who he is, what he did, why he matters through a close reading of the Gospels. And today, I'd like us to see what we can learn from the company that Jesus kept and the parties that he threw. So as we turn to Luke chapter 5, I'd like us to consider three things today. The problem with the parties, the purpose of the parties, and the possibility of the parties. So let's consider Jesus the party thrower. If you'd like, uh, let me invite you to open up a Bible to Luke chapter 5. You'll find this passage printed on page 861 in the Pew Bible. It's also printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 35. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Well, first, let's consider the problem with the parties. Luke tells us that Jesus calls a tax collector named Levi to follow him, to become one of his disciples. And Levi, also known as Matthew, immediately responds. He leaves everything behind and he follows Jesus. And then the next thing we know, Levi throws a great big party and he invites all of his tax collector and sinner friends. And this immediately causes a scandal. The Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, start grumbling to Jesus' disciples. They're complaining. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Well, what's the big deal? The thing that we need to understand is that people hated tax collectors in Jesus' day. I wonder if you've ever had your tax returns investigated by an IRS agent. That would be kind of a scary thing, wouldn't it, to receive a notice from the IRS saying that they were going to take a closer look at your tax returns? Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. We've had the same accountant for over a decade, but a number of years ago, he made a very simple mistake. He punched in the wrong number for my gross income. It was only off by a couple digits. But there was a discrepancy between what it said on my W-2 and what it said on my Form 1040. And apparently the IRS has some machines that look for these types of things. And so my tax return was flagged. Now, the thing that's a little nerve-wracking about being investigated by the IRS, speaking from experience, is that you don't exactly know what they're looking for by design. So I had to call this number, this general number, to be put in touch with the IRS agent assigned to our case. And when he called me back, the number was blocked. So you can't figure out what his number is. You can't figure out what his email is. There's nothing on the internet. You have, you have no idea who this person is. And you know why that is? Because people hate the IRS. So finally, he calls me back and he says, I need you to come downtown and answer a few questions. But you can bring a friend. Oh, okay, well, if I'm going to bring a friend, I'm going to bring my father-in-law, who is a lawyer. <laughs> so Jim and I go downtown to this federal office building, and we have to go through not one, not two, but three security checkpoints to see if we've got knives or guns or box cutters. Why? Because people hate the IRS. But finally, we're led to this dull, sterile, colorless office, and it's at that point that I finally meet my examiner. And so he comes in. He's a young guy. He's relatively new out of school, and this is his first job, and he starts asking me some preliminary questions. But then I think he comes to the conclusion that neither I nor Jim looks like a crook. And so then he begins to apologize, and he explains to me that he grew up in the church his mom is still very, very active at the Lutheran church back home. And then he, he says to me, my mom would be horrified, <laughs> horrified to know that her son is investigating a Presbyterian minister right now. 
And he said, I tried to have this case dismissed. I even tried to have the $134 fine waived. But no, my manager refused. And I said, don't worry, don't worry. Today, salvation has come to this office. (laughs) Hurry, come downstairs with me. I'm going to stay at your house today. No, I didn't invite myself over for dinner. But it would have been a great story. But what that whole episode reminded me of is how much people hate the IRS. This poor guy had to keep a very, very low profile because he had to live in fear that someone might want to hurt him because of his job. But that only scratches the surface of what it was like to be a tax collector in Jesus' day. See, the tax collectors worked for Rome, and they were responsible for collecting tolls and customs taxes for the Roman occupiers, and they were given considerable leeway so that they were allowed to charge whatever they wanted, and then they could pocket the difference. So not only did tax collectors abuse their power and their position in order to extort money from their own people, but they were working for the enemy. They were working for Rome. And so if you want to know what it was like to be a tax collector, think mob boss. They were involved in an incredibly dirty business. And that's why it's so shocking and scandalous that Jesus calls a tax collector, not a mere bureaucrat, a tax collector to be one of his 12 apostles. And not only does he accept an invitation to eat in his home, (laughs) but he goes to a party surrounded by tax collectors. It's not just one tax collector, it's a whole swarm of them. Now, it would be one thing if Jesus welcomed people who were a little lax about keeping religious rules and regulations. But no, the problem is that Jesus hung out with people who had no ethics, who flagrantly broke the moral law. And by so doing, Jesus implies that God's acceptance, God's love is open and available even to them, despite who they are, despite what they've done, despite the ways in which they have lived their lives. And you see, that's what caused the scandal. No one would deny that a tax collector or a notorious sinner could change their ways, turn over a new leaf, get clean, and then receive God's forgiveness. But you shouldn't sit down and eat a meal with them until they do. But that's why Jesus' actions were so shocking, because he leads with grace. He leads with love. Jesus didn't wait for people to clean up their act before engaging in relationship with them. So that was the problem with the parties, But what was the purpose of these parties? What you'll notice, and it's sort of an odd thing, when you read through the Gospels, this was a regular occurrence in Jesus' life. In other words, these parties were not a bug. They were a feature of his ministry. So what was the purpose of these parties? Well, if you go back to Isaiah 25, you can read about what is often referred to as the Messianic Banquet. Isaiah and the other prophets of the Old Testament promised that one day God was going to come to the rescue of his people. And when he does, he's going to take away all of our pain and sorrow. He's going to swallow up death forever. 
He's going to wipe the tears from our faces, and he will remove our reproach. He will remove our shame. And when he does, Isaiah says that God's going to throw a feast. He's going to throw a great big party with rich food and fine wine. And you see, when, when Jesus goes around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, when he goes around announcing that the kingdom of God is here, it's now at hand, what he's saying is the party's already begun. The party is happening now. Why? Because I'm here. The party's beginning now because I'm here. And as a side note, look, this is the reason why Jesus didn't have to say the words, I am God. He's making the most astonishing claim that messianic banquet has already begun because I'm here. Who says something like that? Right, and so people complain. They ask, well, why do your disciples not fast and pray like the disciples of John the Baptist? And Jesus says, because I'm here and that is cause for celebration. It's like a wedding. A wedding is not a time for people to fast. It's a time for people to party. Now is the perfect time to pop open a bottle and begin to celebrate because the moment that we've all been waiting for, the moment that the world has been waiting for has finally arrived. I'm here. So let the party begin. But still, some might say, okay, well, if that's the case, if Jesus welcomes all and everyone without exception into that messianic banquet, well, then doesn't that show that Jesus really was just a teacher of love and tolerance. He accepted people as they are without any strings attached. And therefore, isn't it true that it would be wrong, it would be wrong for us to ever ask anybody to change the way they think or to change the way in which they live their lives. But no, that's not right. Look, look more closely. Jesus freely welcomes everyone that everyone else would reject. He welcomes them unconditionally. And yet, at the very same time, he also calls them to completely rearrange their lives around him, to place him at the center of their lives. And that's what Levi does. Look at Levi. He leaves everything to follow Jesus and to become his disciple. So yes, he extends that invitation with no strings attached, but to receive that invitation means you completely rearrange your life around Jesus. And so notice how Jesus responds when he's asked that question. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? He says, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, do you get what Jesus is saying here? He hasn't come for those who are well, but those who are sick. If you went over to New York Presbyterian Hospital, you walked into the ER, and you saw an ER doctor surrounded by people running a high fever, or coughing up blood, or overdosing on drugs, or suffering from a gunshot wound, would you conclude, huh, that person just doesn't really seem to be all that concerned with health? What does that ER doctor do? Does he, does he meet people in the lobby and then, with all their conditions, pat them on the back and send them back out and say, you know what, I like you just the way you are. <laughs> no, he's committed his whole life 
to making people better. In fact, he's taken an oath to do everything within his power to lead people down the path of healing and wholeness. And that's how it is for Jesus. Of course, Jesus is going to be surrounded by sinners, by those who are sick, because he's not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, Jesus hasn't come to heal the healthy, but rather those who know that they are sick. Okay, but then again, you might say, fair enough. That means that Jesus came to help the lowest of the low. He came to help the people that have really made an absolute mess of their lives. The sick, the sinners. And so some people might really need that. Some people might have really screwed up in the past, and so the forgiveness and the grace that Jesus offers is exactly what they need in order to turn their lives around. But for the rest of us, we're okay. We're good. We don't, we don't need what Jesus has to offer. But no, remember who Jesus is talking to here. You might think that, okay, well, Jesus is saying there's two kinds of people. There's the, there's the healthy and the sick. There's the righteous and the sinners. But remember, he's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the religious leaders, the people who prided themselves on their religious performance. These were people who were devout, pious, observant, right? But remember, Jesus reserved his sharpest critiques for just these people, for the Pharisees, for the religious leaders, because, yeah, they might have looked good on the outside. It might have seemed as if they had it all together, but Jesus could see underneath the surface. He could see the greed. He could see the self-indulgence. He could see the ethnic pride, the nationalistic superiority, And Jesus constantly lambasts them. So in Jesus' mind, no, there aren't two kinds of people, the healthy and the sick, and the sick need him, whereas the healthy don't. No, for Jesus, there's only one kind of person. There's only one kind of person, the sick. The only difference between people is whether or not you know you're sick or not. So imagine two people. Let's say they both have the same underlying condition, and it's curable, but it will lead to death if it's not treated. And let's say one person knows that they have a problem, but the other person is blissfully unaware of this underlying condition because there are no outward symptoms. Which person is going to die first? The most dangerous position to be in is to have a fatal disease without knowing it. And so you see, for Jesus, there aren't two kinds of people, the healthy and the sick. No, everyone is sick. The only difference among people is whether they realize it or not. So if you think you're healthy when you're really not, you'll never seek treatment. And likewise, if you think you are righteous when you're really not, then you'll never repent. And you see, as we've talked about, the word repent simply means to turn. It means to turn from self to Jesus. It means to rely on Jesus rather than yourself for your standing, your acceptance before God. But the only way you can ever do that is to see that you've got a problem. Only the sick seek treatment. And only sinners repent. In fact, only sinners can repent. But Jesus leads with grace, and that's the whole point. Jesus' grace precedes our repentance. 
It not only precedes our repentance, it enables our repentance. The fact that Jesus leads with his love means that his grace not only comes first, but it makes it possible for us to repent. It makes us want to repent. The promise of his love and grace leads us to want to turn from self to him. And that's what he's trying to do. That's the purpose of the parties. So we've considered the problem and the purpose, but now I'd like us to turn to the possibility. What kind of possibilities do these parties open up for us? What do these parties mean? What was Jesus trying to say? What was he trying to communicate? Well, what Jesus was trying to show through these parties is that he is offering an entirely new kind of human community. That's what he's trying to show. These parties demonstrate that there is a whole new kind of human community possible only through him. What Jesus is saying is that when your relationship with God unraveled, it led to the unraveling of all of our other relationships. That's the problem. That's the source of all the issues we see out there in the world. When your relationship with God unravels, it leads to the unraveling of all of your other relationships. That's why there's conflict between individuals and races and classes and nations. That's why there's strife in families and in communities. That's why there's issues at school and at work. When our relationship with God unravels, it leads to the unraveling of all of our other relationships. You know, think of your, your uh, piece of clothing. If you get a little snag in your clothing, if one thread comes undone, it'll lead to the unraveling of the whole article of clothing. So if your relationship with God unravels, it leads to the unraveling of all other relationships. But Jesus is saying, if your relationship with me is restored, it leads to the restoration of all of your relationships. And that's what the parties show. I mean, it's astounding the ways in which Jesus brings people together across difference. Jesus brings people together who otherwise would never have anything to do with one another. Men and women Rich and poor, young and old, tax collectors and sinners, as well as Pharisees and scribes, Jews and Gentiles, the educated elite and the blind beggar in the street. They're all at the parties, all together in one place. And what does that show you? The bond that Jesus creates between people who are united to him by faith outweighs any other relationship that is founded on any other basis, Race, class, politics, economics, ethnicity, nationality. If two people are united in Christ, that bond far outweighs any other relationship. Because if you are a Christian, it means you're a Christian first and a man second or a woman second. If you're a Christian, it means you're a Christian first and white second or black second or Asian second or Latino second. If you are a Christian, you're a Christian first and an American second. Do you realize that? that? That bond that we share in Christ far outweighs any other relationship founded on any other basis. Everyone found the company of Jesus absolutely irresistible. And that's what brought people together. But if that's true, then let me just say three things in closing about the new kind of human community that Jesus creates. Let me give you three images. This new human community is, first of all, a community and not a club. It's a community, not a club. Do you realize that Jesus not only called Levi to be one of the first 12 apostles, 
a tax collector who was collaborating with the Romans. But he also called a man named Simon the Zealot. Now, what does that mean to be called a zealot? Does that mean that he was just especially fervent about his faith? No. It means that he was part of an armed revolutionary group that was seeking to overthrow the Roman occupiers of Palestine through violent means. Now, think about this. That means that Levi and Simon are on absolute opposite ends of the political spectrum. You've got a tax collector collaborating with the Romans, and then you've got a zealot who is part of this armed resistance movement to overthrow the Romans through violence. You couldn't think of two people on more opposite extremes. So Simon and Levi make Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton look like political allies. <laughs> Levi and Simon make Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy look like BFF, best friends forever. And we have to press into this because this is Jesus' vision for human community. I mean, wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall and just sort of observe a dinner taking place with Jesus at the center and Simon and Levi on either side? Now, last week I said that it is impossible, it's impossible to live the Christian life without community. But let me press that point. Not only do we need to get into community, we need to get into a community group. We need to be part of a Bible study. We, we can't just show up on Sunday mornings. But not only do we need to get into a community, we need to get into a healthy community. And what's a healthy Christian community? Well, it is not an exclusive club. Look, many of us would resonate with the inspiring vision of Christian community that Jesus lays out for us. But when it gets down to it, when the rubber really meets the road, what do we do? We look for people, we seek out people who are just like us. We want a club. We want to be with people who look like us, talk like us, dress like us, make money like us, spend money like us, vote like us. But let me just say that when we veer in that direction, when we veer towards exclusivity or cliquishness within our groups, very gently, let me say, that is a betrayal of the gospel. Because Jesus died to bring people like Levi and Simon together. And so we have to guard against this. We have to guard against that natural tendency towards exclusivity and cliquishness. We can't allow the church to become a club. And so here's what I want you to do today, every day, every day you come to Central, when the service is over, when you're milling here in the sanctuary or in the narthex or when you go upstairs to have a meal on the sixth floor, I want you to purposefully look for people that look absolutely nothing like you. Find people with whom you assume you have nothing in common except Jesus. That's the person I want you to welcome. That's the person I want you to introduce yourself to. That's the person I want you to befriend because we have to actively fight against this natural tendency towards clubbishness. We're called to be a community, not a club. But then secondly, we're called to be a hospital, not a museum. We not only need to guard against becoming a club, but we also need to guard against what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called a pious fellowship. What do you think he meant by that? Bonhoeffer said, the pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner, 
So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. He goes on to explain that we never really make the final breakthrough to true Christian community if we maintain a pious fellowship. He says the final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, the healthy, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners, the sick. So what did Bonhoeffer mean by this? One pastor tried to explain it with this analogy. Imagine a a small group. Maybe there's a group of people in a small men's Bible study. And after the Bible study is over, they, they begin to share some prayer requests. And the first person says, well, you could pray for me because I haven't really prioritized my prayer life. So you could, you could pray that I would spend more time in prayer. And everybody else in the group says, oh, that's a, that's a great prayer request. We'll pray for you about that. And then the next person says, I haven't really been reading my Bible all that often. So you, you could pray for me that I would make a priority of reading scripture. And everybody says, oh, that's, that's a good prayer request. We'll pray for you about that. Third person says, I've been so busy. I've got a crazy travel schedule. I haven't gotten to church as often as I'd like to. You could pray that my schedule would die down so that I could be present in corporate worship more often. Oh, absolutely. Good prayer request. We'll pray for that. And then the fourth person says, my wife and I are in the midst of a feud. We have not spoken with each other for two weeks. I think I have a drinking problem and I may be addicted to pornography. What do you think Bonhoeffer would say to that? He says, many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. This is what he's arguing against. We have to guard against the pious fellowship. Because the the church is not a museum for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. Have you heard that saying before? If you were to go to a museum, like the Metropolitan Museum of Art, what would you expect to see? You would expect to see some of the great accomplishments of the past created by people who are long since dead, and everything is pristine and clean and roped off or put behind glass, and there's a guard there to make sure that you look, but you don't touch. And many people think that's the church. It's just a museum for saints. We remember the people who have gone before us in the past who lived spotless, perfect lives. But if you were to go over to New York Presbyterian and you walk into the ER, what would you expect to see? You would expect to see some blood. You'd see people half naked wearing a hospital gown with broken bones and bloody wounds crying out in pain. And in the ER, you wouldn't think to yourself, huh, that person's really hurting. I wonder what they're doing here. No, you would say, It's good that you're here. And you see, that is what the church is supposed to be. It's not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. So what about you? Are your relationships a mess? Is your marriage on the rocks? Your kids are in trouble? Are you lonely and stressed out? You can't control your anxiety or your fear? Perfect. Perfect. You are in the right place. This is where you're supposed to be. And let me just say, too, that Chris and I as pastors, trust me, like an ER doctor, we've seen and heard it all before. So if you need help, feel free to reach out to us, and please do. At this point, it would be very, very hard, especially as pastors in New York, to be shocked. (laughs) But let me also just say, if you're not a Christian, or if you are 
wary of getting involved in Christian community again because you've been hurt in the past. You've been burned by the church. First of all, let me say, I'm sorry. Speaking as someone who leads a church, I'm sorry. I am sorry that that happened to you. I really am. And we want to make your experience at Central better. But let me also gently remind you that if you have been hurt by Christians in the past, please remember that you have been hurt by fellow patients, not Jesus. You've been hurt by fellow patients. So don't give up on Jesus. Don't give up on the great physician. Don't give up on the hospital just because the fellow patient behind the screen hurt you. So we're called to be a community, not a club. We're called to be a hospital, not a museum. But then finally, the church is called to be a party, not a funeral. In light of what Jesus has accomplished for us, there should be a joyful, celebratory aspect to our life together. Levi is so grateful for what he's found in Jesus. He wants everyone else in his life to experience it. And so what does he do? He invites a whole bunch of tax collectors and sinners over to his home for a party. Why them? Because those are the only friends he has. But he wants them to meet Jesus and his disciples. And I want you to do the same thing. So if there's nothing else you take from this sermon, this is it. Your pastor wants you to throw a party. It doesn't have to be a big one. It can be a small, intimate party. But I want you to throw a party. But I want you to throw a party like Levi does. I want you to throw a Levi party. And here's what I mean. Many of us divide our friend groups into two categories. On the one hand, we might have some Christian friends that we know from church. And then we've got our other friends that we know from work or from school or through our kids. And those two groups never mix. But look at Levi. Levi brings those two groups together. He invites Jesus and his disciples as well as all of his tax collector and sinner friends over. And that is precisely what needs to happen in our world. We can't keep those groups separate. We need to bring them together. How will some of our friends who do not yet know Jesus ever come to see that, that Christianity is not oppressive or regressive unless they actually get to know some fellow Christians who are striving to live out their lives in an authentic way as they follow Jesus in New York City. See, we, we need to bring those groups of people together so that those who have very little exposure to Christianity can see what the real thing looks like when it's lived out in an actual person's life. So throw a party with the goal of bringing those various groups of friends together and just see, see what Jesus will do. But the church is called to be a community, not a club. It's called to be a hospital, not a museum. And it should feel a whole lot more like a party than a funeral. And the message of the gospel is, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your past, you always have a seat at Jesus' table. But do you realize how astonishing that really is? I mean, stop and think about yourself. Think about who you are, how you've lived. And consider who Jesus is. Why should Jesus include you? Why should Jesus include me at his table? See, the true scandal is that Jesus is still 
partying with all the wrong people because he includes us. The book of Revelation tells us that nothing impure, nothing detestable, nothing false can ever enter into God's promised future, can never take, place, take part in that messianic banquet. And consider ourselves, our own impurity, our mistakes, our wrongdoing. Jesus has every right to exclude us. So what hope is there for any of us? Well, at the very end of the passage that we read today, Jesus said, look, while I'm here, it's time to celebrate. But there will come a day when the bridegroom is taken away. And people will fast on that day. And what was he talking about? He was saying that one day he would be taken away because they would hang him up on a cross. And people would mourn. They would lament. They would fast when Jesus died. But don't you realize that is the key to it all? Because on the cross, Jesus takes everything that is impure and detestable and false about us upon himself. He is excluded on the cross so that we might be included at his table. Jesus takes our disease and our death in order to offer us his healing and his life. And when you realize that, when you take that deep into your heart and into your life, you know that no matter what your circumstances might be, there's always reason to celebrate because Jesus has invited you to his banquet, to his feast. And therefore, let the party begin. And as you celebrate, make sure you invite your friends. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the vision of community that Jesus offers us. A community, not a club. A hospital, not a museum. A party, not a funeral. Help us to live into that truth because we are filled with such great joy that stems from knowing that you have included us, even us, in your fellowship. May we never take that for granted. May we stand astounded by the fact that you still party with all the wrong people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.